We'll hear argument next in Vadden versus Discover Bank. Mr. Ortiz. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case poses two substantive issues. First, whether Section 4 of the Federal Arbitration Act impliedly repeals Section 1331's well-pleaded complaint requirement. Only if it does can a district court look through a petition to compel arbitration that itself contains no federal question to ground federal subject matter jurisdiction on a federal question lurking somewhere in the dispute sought to be arbitrated. And second, if Section 4 does repeal this part of Section 1331, can a completely preempted state law counterclaim in a pending state court lawsuit furnish look-through jurisdiction? Your Honors, at bottom, this is a dispute between two radically different conceptions of federal question jurisdiction. One view, respondents, is so broad as to allow a party to compel arbitration in federal court of nearly any dispute concerning credit card debt. And one, petitioners, narrowly confines subject matter jurisdiction to those disputes where the, uh, the arbitration agreement itself arguably arises under federal law. But, Your Honors, the ordinary and original meaning of Section 4, the structure of the overall Federal Arbitration Act, and the purposes of the Federal Arbitration Act all militate strongly in favor of petitioners' view of subject matter jurisdiction here. First, the language. The words save for such agreement, uh, Your Honors, as the words save for themselves suggest and uh, necessarily imply that the agreement uh, exerts some negative effect on otherwise existing jurisdiction. Well, but that's yeah, it simply means that you can't bring an action in federal court because the agreement says you can't. The agreement says you've got to arbitrate. So if you throw the agreement out, save for such agreement, the question is whether or not you could then bring the uh, action in, in federal court. Your Honor, uh, the those words, save for such agreement, were originally intended to refer to the hoary doctrine of ouster, which barred the federal courts from subject matter jurisdiction in uh, such suits. The words, but for, suggest that the agreement itself somehow impairs jurisdiction. Mr. Ortiz, why isn't Section 2 of the Arbitration Act sufficient to take care of the ouster doctrine, whatever may have been left of it? Uh, Your Honor, Section 2 says that an, an arbitration agreement shall be valid, irrevocable, and enforceable. At the time when Section 2 was enacted, the federal courts were still split between law and equity. It would, uh, Section 2 by itself could well have made such arbitration agreements enforceable, but only in law. Section 4, say for such agreement, makes clear that there is no I'm, I'm not sure that I follow that, because it seems to me, uh, where, where did this doctrine of ouster come from? It came from the courts. The courts said, no, we won't enforce arbitration agreements because it would oust us of jurisdiction. If why would a court reading Section 2 not say, well, uh, that rule never made any sense in the first place, so we're not going to follow it? It's uh, not any rule that Congress has imposed on the courts. Uh, Your Honor, Section 2 by itself would not have made clear that uh, in such agreements were enforceable in equity. Uh, as as uh, Justice Story uh, wrote in Toby versus County of Bristol, uh, bills and equity were thought in the federal courts uh, to be ill-founded uh, in point of jurisdiction to support uh, motion to compel uh, arbitration. And so although under Section 2, such an agreement might be enforceable in law, damages might be available, penalty uh, clauses might be enforced in law, a party might also be able to recover the expenses incurred in an arbitration that was revoked before the arbitration uh, came to its conclusion, uh, that would not be clear that — Whatever may have been the historic model, this was never a notion that Congress enforced on the courts. They imposed it on themselves. So my question remains, why shouldn't the court then say, this agreement has been declared unenforceable, the ouster doctrine didn't have much to recommend it in the beginning, but certainly not anymore. We can change it. 
No, Your Honor. Uh, it is true that Congress in the Federal Arbitration Act abrogated the ouster doctrine. The only question is whether Section 2 would do so by itself or whether Section 4 was necessary because of the division between law and equity. Uh, I'm just not getting the — I have never understood this argument, and I still don't understand it now. What is it in the text of Section 2 that would seem to leave it uh, inadequate to touch equity as well as law? Uh, Your Honor, Section 2 says that arbitration agreements shall be valid, irrevocable, and enforceable, but does not say how they could be enforced. Exactly. And why, therefore, would anyone — why would anyone be drawing distinctions as to how uh, it would be enforceable in any way that an agreement might appropriately be enforced in, in the uh, courts of the United States at the time, or any courts for that matter, uh, at the time the Act was passed? Uh, Your Honor, if Congress wanted to be very clear that ouster in all of its forms was no longer any kind of issue in enforcing arbitration agreements, it took the extra step in well, Section but it, 4. It, 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 it made a categorical statement in Section 2. Why did it need to be any clearer than that? Well, because, Your Honor, it would be the case that uh, arbitration agreements could be enforceable, but just not enforceable in the way that might be most helpful. Well, it could be, but why in the world would anyone draw that inference? Uh, Your Honor, there, because there were separate bars at law and equity at the time, and at the time of ouster. Under law, uh, there was some room in some jurisdictions for there to be enforcement, not across the board. In equity, there was an even higher standard uh, at the time but against jurisdiction. I have the same problem that uh, Justice Souter does, especially since Section 2 refers to equity. It says they'll be revocable and enforceable, sa- uh, irre- uh, uh, save upon such grounds as exist at law or in equity for the revocation of any contract. Obviously, this, uh, this section was meant to apply to equitable actions. You, you wouldn't dismiss them in law for a, uh, uh, a ground that only existed in equity. Well, but that particular section, uh, Justice Scalia, is meant to refer to ordinary state contract doctrines in law and equity, which would make the, con- the overall contract unenforceable. The safe or language is specifically directed at ouster, which is a jurisdictional doctrine, rather than one of substantive contract law. But well, I, I don't know. When it, say, when it says they're enforceable and, and, and makes an exception only for grounds uh, that uh, enable revocation in law or in equity, I would, I would think that the general command uh, was meant to apply to both law and equity. That, well, Your Honor, the respondent's view also doesn't take into account the other provisions of the Federal Arbitration Act itself. Under their view, the safe or language is literally read out of Section 4 of the agreement, since the rest of Section 4 would accomplish uh, exactly what they think, uh, the look-through doctrine that they're arguing for without those four critical words. Uh, also, Sections 203 and Sections 205 show that when Congress wanted to expand subject matter jurisdiction, it knew how to do so clearly, clearly and unequivocally. And, in fact, when Congress adopted Section 205 in 1970 — I to interrupt you, but would you explain to me why the word save for such agreement cut back on the jurisdiction? I didn't quite understand your point. No, uh, Justice Stevens, the, the point is that save for such agreement right. instructs a court to jump over the, the historical ouster doctrine. So doesn't, doesn't it just instruct the court to decide whether if there were no such agreement, would there be juri- federal jurisdiction of the underlying dispute? Yes. Yes, Your Honor. So if In this case, there would be. Uh, no, Your Honor, because the underlying dispute between the parties in this case is a uh, concerns the arbitration agreement, not the underlying bank debt. No, it's not the underlying bank debt, but it is an underlying dispute over which this federal If you had brought your class action as an original case, there would have been federal jurisdiction. Yes, Your Honor. 
So then why doesn't the language just read on this case? Well, Your Honor, the language in uh, — this particular language of Section 4 is meant to say, save for such agreement, but for the doctrine of ouster, setting aside the ouster doctrine, but whether this, there were — the text says nothing about the ouster doctrine. No, but read in its historical context, Your Honor. Rather that, than literally. Rather — well, literally at the time it would have been understood to refer to, uh, to, refer to that, because ouster — was the whole problem against which the FAA itself was first enacted. The so FAA this is a tough, it's a tough sell when you say, save for such agreement, which I agree with Justice Stevens, seems to me you put the agreement aside, and then you say, right away, then you look at the agreement to see if there's federal jurisdiction, and only the agreement, not through that. So you're throwing it out, and then you bring it right back in, it seems... Not quite, Your Honor. What the rest of the, the, that sentence in Section 4 instructs the Court to look at a suit concerning the subject matter in controversy, which would be a suit uh, seeking specific performance of the arbitration. Of the arbitration agreement. Yes, sir. So you are — what the Court is instructed to do under the safe for such agreement clause is to ignore the historical problem of ouster and then to see whether in a suit brought to specifically enforce the arbitration agreement, there would be federal subject matter jurisdiction. Right. What's and the, I guess it's — I mean, you say if it said save for the historic doctrine of ouster, then it would be easier to say, and then you look at the arbitration agreement. But it says save for such agreement, and then you look at the agreement. Well, you're not quite looking at the agreement. You're, and this makes clear, I believe, that ouster was the problem being referred to in those four words in Section 4. It says a suit arising out of the controversy. It's instructing the federal courts to determine federal subject matter jurisdiction for a Section 4 proceeding, which was completely novel but at you, the time. But you just, you just used the words arising out of the controversy. The controversy is used in several sections of the Arbitration Act, and the con- Controversy in other contexts means the underlying dispute between the parties. Not the the contra, controversy is not over the enforcement of the arbitration agreement. With all respect, Justice Ginsburg, it's a little bit more complicated uh, than that. The Federal Arbitration Act uses the word controversy four times, twice in Section 2, once in Section 4, and once in Section 5. In Section 2, the word controversy is embedded in a larger phrase, controversy arising out of such contract or transaction. It is that context for the word controversy that makes clear that in Section 2, both instances in Section 2, is referring to the uh, dispute which is sought to be arbitrated. In Section 5, by contrast, the simple word uh, uh, which appears in the middle of uh, 4A of the petitioner's brief uh, either re- Section 5, which deals with the appointment of arbitrators or umpires, sa- says either party to the controversy. It is clear in the Section 5 context that the word controversy by itself refers to the controversy over arbitration, not to the underlying dispute. Well, in con- Moses H. H. Cohn, didn't the Court say that the controversy was the underlying dispute? Uh, Your Honor, that, uh, the, this Court, in that footnote 32 of Moses H. Cohn, uh, uh, mentioned language that refers to the underlying dispute. In context of both the sentence, the footnote itself, and the overall case, it is clear that the Court could not have meant that. That phrase is followed immediately by a semicolon and then the word hence. And after the word hence, in that same sentence in the same footnote, this Court uh, says, hence, an independent basis for jurisdiction needs to exist which in, in context makes it clear that it's not referring to look-through. Also, uh, that sentence cites a Fifth Circuit case, Commercial Metals Company, and the other points to the other cases in it. They basically show that an independent, uh, stand for the proposition that an independent basis of jurisdiction exists, not that there's look-through. And in fact, one of them, dealing with federal question jurisdiction, says that the federal issue has to appear on the face of the complaint. The rest of footnote 32 Your Honor, is all directed towards the uh, jurisdictional inertness of the FAA overall. And the case, Moses H. Cohn itself, if look-through had been rigorously adopted there, it would have defeated subject matter jurisdiction because there would not have been uh, complete diversity among the parties. But you do think 
you do think we should look through to determine diversity and the amount in question? In other words, not in the federal question context, but if it's diversity, you say we do look through the arbitration agreement. Your Honor, that seems a somewhat different sense of look-through. But to the extent that ordinary background 1331 or 1332 principles authorize such look-through, that is appropriate in arbitration cases as much as it is appropriate outside of arbitration cases. It is petitioners' contention that Section 4 has no independent look-through force. To the extent that look-through is appropriate, it's because it's appropriate under Section 1332 itself. If, under respondents' view, Section 4 operates independently to authorize look-through, then it would presumably override uh, 1332's normal uh, principle that you do not look through in determining complete diversity. And it would have the overall effect of paradoxically reducing the number of uh, petitions to compel on the diversity side that could be brought in federal court. Say that again. I, I didn't follow that. Just, uh, just the, the, the point is a simple one, but it's sometimes hard to express. If you, if this court <clears throat> says that Section 4 operates independently to authorize look-through in Section 1331 and Section 1332, mm-hmm. the courts, district courts, will be in the position of looking through Section 1332 petitions to determine whether the parties are completely diverse. It will not be basing the complete diversity determination on the parties before it in the arbitration, in the petition to compel itself, but will be looking through to the underlying dispute. Now, Moses H. Cohn, if the Court had done that, it would have uh, picked up the architect who was dropped from the actual, uh, between the actual underlying lawsuit and the petition to compel arbitration, and completeness of diversity would have been defeated was that there. And argued in Moses, Moses Cohn. Was that point argued in, the, in that case? Uh, I, do, I do not know, Your Honor. Why, why wouldn't 1332 re- require complete diversity and require the Court to assure itself of that anyway? No, Your Honor, the question, 1332 does not authorize look-through for purposes of determining completeness of diversity. So if Section 4 independently I thought you said it did have a look-through, an automatic look-through itself. Not in the completeness of diversity, Your Honor. To the extent it has anything equivalent to look-through, it's on the amount and controversy side of Section 1332. I, I see. Not, I see. You're, you're, not, you're limiting it to the amount. Yes. So under respondents' view, mm-hmm. there would be uh, — Section 4 would authorize look-through one part of Section 1332 and not with respect to another part of Section 1332. Under I'm, not, I'm just I just got to be sure I follow. Why couldn't it require the same look-through in a diversity case as it does in a federal question case? Because, Your Honor, if this Court authorizes look-through in federal question cases through the arbitration agreement right. itself to the underlying dispute, then if that look if that look-through comes uh, authorization comes from Section Four, right. then in the 1332 cases, this Court would be looking through not only for amount and controversy purposes. But also complete diversity. But also for complete diversity. what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Well, that would have the effect, Your Honor, of not allowing the uh, petitioner to define the contours of the lawsuit and would actually reduce the number of Section 1332 petitions that could be brought in federal court. Maybe it would. So what? well, Your Honor, if that is if one, that is an implication that is uh, is lurking in respondents' position, and it is also in a case like this, it is a little bit worrying for why ordinary jurisdiction 1332 principles should not apply. There's a dispute between people. You look at their underlying dispute, the underlying one, and you say, "Is there diversity? What's the problem?" Well, Your Honor, that's not actually the way any federal court, lower federal court now. Yeah, why, why wouldn't you do just what I said, just what we started with? Uh, you take out the arbitration agreement, and then you look to see what this dispute is about. And if it's about something that happens to involve all people from one side on one state and from another state on the other side, there's jurisdiction. Why is that a problem? I we, don't understand. Uh, Your Honor, it uh, — it removes the petitioner's ability or the plaintiff's ability, in ordinary, similar to the plaintiff's ability in ordinary lawsuit, to define Why? Uh, the parties. Why? Well, because, Your Honor, someone could not bring a Section 4 petition in federal court against maybe one party seeking uh, to force that party into arbitration <clears throat> if there are other parties involved in the underlying 
dispute no. where there's no diversity. So well, that, you define look-through as, um, under our hypothetical here, as looking through to all people who might potentially be parties under this arbitration agreement. Well, that would be the implication of taking the kind of look-through theory that respondents are arguing for in this case and applying it well, handedly. I'll think about that. I'm, I'm, I was, it wasn't clear to me that that was so. But, Your Honor, there are also several jurisdictional gaps in the Act that are created under respondents' view. The critical Can I hold up just a second to make sure I understand it? You're saying that, let's say, Person A has an arbitration agreement um, that implicates Person B and C. If C is diverse but B is not, they could decide to compel arbitration with respect to B and leave C out of it. But if you follow the look-through doctrine, you'd say, well, the dispute is between A and B and C, and so you'd be depriving A of their right to frame their own complaint in a way that doesn't create federal jurisdiction. Exactly, Your Honor. No, but, that but that's not quite so, because uh, the, the action could proceed with just A and C. Um, and and it's, 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 uh, it, it could come to a com- complete judgment as to them. In the look-through for the, the claims that are involved, the action couldn't possibly proceed without uh, taking account of the preemption claim, the, the federal federal claim. You couldn't — you could decide the case completely in number one, diversity case, but not in number two. So that — so there is a difference. Uh, it's true you don't decide it completely as to all parties. Well, no, no, Your Honor, but there, there could, under either situation, be large parts of the underlying dispute that are not covered under, and is still left to be decided. Uh, it is, you know, not the case that necessarily everything would be subject uh, to arbitration. Of course, I suppose how that works depends on what the rules are about how you frame the dispute once you do look through. I mean, if there's a pending state suit between A and B, even though C may, you could have sued C as well, I mean, the judge can say, well, I'm only going to look through to what the, the actual litigation is. And if I look at that, that's not a federal case. Uh, and, and so your position follows. This court could. Uh, and interestingly, that wasn't the situation in Moses H. Cohn itself. There, there was a pre-existing lawsuit. Yeah. And this court did not look through. Uh, the court found that there's no problem with the architect uh, being absent from the position to compel arbitration itself. Now, Your Honors, there's also, a, as I mentioned, strange jurisdictional gaps uh, that are created under respondents to this case. Section 4 is the only section of the arbitration, the Federal Arbitration Act, that has the critical safe or such language, which under respondents view authorizes look-through jurisdiction. In particular, Section 7, 9, 10, and 11, which uh, allow a court, federal court, to compel the attendance of witnesses at an arbitration, that's Section 7, and then 9, 10, and 11, which respective, respectively allow a federal court to confirm, vacate, or modify an arbitration once it's happened. None of those sections contain language which, under respondents view in the Fourth Circuit's view, are necessary uh, for there to be look-through. In all those cases, uh, situations, Your Honor, the federal courts would be in a position of being able to compel arbitration under Section 4, but not being able to compel the attendance of witnesses at the arbitration or to subsequently confirm, vacate, or modify an award coming from an arbitration that they themselves uh, compelled. Uh, the closest respondent comes to sort of explaining this or trying to jump over, leap over uh, this gap is in two amici, two uh, law professors, uh, who argue that this Court should find jurisdiction, uh, subject matter jurisdiction under Section 7, 9, 10, 11, as an emanation uh, from Sections 3 and 4, uh, only one of which actually has a necessary safe or language. Um, also, Your Honors, this look-through approach to federal subject matter jurisdiction violates the core purposes of the Federal Arbitration Act. The Federal Arbitration Act was meant to get things to arbitration quickly and to have arbitrators, not judges, decide them. These com- sometimes, often, complex jurisdictional inquiries uh, undermine both those aims. Here, this case has been pending in federal court just at the jurisdictional stage, uh, for many years now. Uh, in the Strong case, which is now en banc before the Fifth Circuit, uh, sorry, the Eleventh Circuit, uh, the Justice, uh, Judge, excuse me, Judge Marcus wrote a 32-page opinion. Yeah, and what really leapt off the page at me in that opinion, 
he gets to the end, he, I think, basically presents your position. And then he says, thus, on my reading, the relevant portion of Section 4 could be rewritten this way. Well, I mean, that to me is a confession of error if you have to rewrite the statute to get to your position. Well, Your Honor, he didn't say it had to be rewritten. He said if you wanted to make it even clearer what was originally intended under Section 4, that is how you would do it. Uh, uh, that's a far cry from saying that you need to do violence to the statute here. Well, his rewriting doesn't look very much like Section 4 to me. Uh, Your Honor, if his rewriting, given the, the disappearance of the ouster doctrine, he's trying to make it clear to present context what was originally understood at the time the Congress originally enacted the FAA. There's no memory, historical memory or otherwise, of the, uh, the ouster doctrine, no realization how it actually played out. And against that absence of knowledge, Judge Marcus is trying to educate uh, his readers and the lower courts as to how things need to be done. But certainly the language is originally understood would have, that say-for language would have been all about <coughs> ouster, which it is clear from the time was thought by Congress to be the major obstacle to arbitration. But what about the fact that that was not included in the New Jersey statute? Nor was it included in, was it included in the Uniform Arbitration Act? Uh, no, Your Honor. Now, that What's the, the explanation for that? The explanation, Your Honor, is that in New York, uh, law and equity had been merged. I know, and you say in New Jersey it was you know, a very complicated argument about the status of it. What about the Uniform Arbitration Act? Uh, by the later times, it appeared that it was closer, coming, that law and equity across many jurisdictions was coming closer. Uh, but at the time, uh, in the federal court system at least, if only because of justice stories, hostility towards jurisdiction, finding jurisdiction in the Toby case, uh, to a bill of equity seeking specific performance, these kinds of things, that language is necessarily clear. Uh, Your Honors, uh, if there are no further questions, I would like to reserve my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Mr. Phillips. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. And may it please the Court, it seems to me that if the argument that just ended doesn't prove anything, it suggests that perhaps the Court ought to follow the simple expedient of read the statute as it's written, apply it as written, and uh, come to what strikes me at least as a reasonably easy resolution of this particular case. The statute says that a party aggrieved by the alleged failure to arbitrate, and we have that precisely in this case because the other side has filed a lawsuit against uh, our indemnity uh, arising out of an underlying dispute, may petition any United States District Court which save for such an agreement it's pretty clear that everybody agrees that in those contexts you just simply put the agreement aside. And then you say, would have jurisdiction under Title 28 and a civil action of the subject matter of a suit arising out of the controversy between the parties. It seems to me reasonably clear to interpret that language as saying you look to the underlying dispute between the parties. But that's the question that I have, Mr. Phillips. What is the underlying dispute between the parties? It seems to me that your look through argument is look through only halfway. That is, if you look, if you consider the controversy, the suit that was brought in the state court, the controversy is here we have a customer who hasn't paid the amount charged. So we have a suit on a debt. Why isn't that the controversy? You have to make the counterclaim the controversy, which comes up only defensively. It wasn't brought as a lawsuit. Justice Ginsburg, the language of Section 4 actually talks about the subject matter of a suit arising out of, not the existence of a suit. And Section 4 doesn't require that a lawsuit have been filed. So it's not appropriate simply to say to yourself, look at what litigation actually exists, because in, in as many cases as not, there's not going to be any litigation ongoing. So the Court has to make the hypothetical would the court have had jurisdiction over the subject matter of this dispute? And the dispute in this case, which uh, Professor Ortiz was very explicit about, he said specifically that if he had brought this as an affirmative lawsuit, it would have arisen under federal law. It seems to me that's as clear a concession that the nature of this dispute is a question of federal but law. Who gets, therefore, to frame the dis- who gets to frame the complaint? Normally, if you're a party and you have a dispute that may implicate federal law, you have control over the complaint. You don't have to 
have a — you don't have to well plead it in a way that implicates a federal question. You can go out of your way to do it in a way that does not implicate a federal question, and therefore it would not be — you could not bring it in federal court. Just as in right. the diversity example, you can specifically avoid suing people who would create diversity. But in your position, the judge has to, in his mind, uh, write a complaint uh, and see whether it, there's jurisdiction or not, and how does the judge decide whether to sue diverse parties or not to sue? I, I think what the well, I think what the judge has to do is to take is to give the the plaintiff in the section four complaint the benefit of his allegations, and we have made an allegation here that the subject matter of this dispute arises under federal law, and we did that not not just based on our own assessment of the situation in the abstract, but we did that on the basis that she had filed a very specific claim against us, asserting that we had violated essentially but, Section 20. But she 27. chose to assert it only defensively, and that's — it's not a, a complaint. The, the counterclaim, if it had been brought as an independent action, everybody agrees, qualifies for federal jurisdiction. But the, the, the litigant who has this claim is asserting it only as a defense to a claim that you admit does not qualify. But, but, Justice Ginsburg, I think the difference is that we are not seeking to remove her original lawsuit. That's not — if that were the case, then I think the argument you're making is a legitimate one. All we are seeking to do is to assert our independent Section 4 rights. And that's not at all dependent but on the — But in practical effect, what happens now? You, you have asserted that you can enforce because of the counterclaim — that asserts that arises under federal law. But you say it's not the same as removal because the underlying claim, your suit on the debt owed, remains in federal state court. But what happens to that claim once you have this arbitration? Well, there are a couple of possibilities. I mean, first of all, the arbitration agreement is quite explicit in saying that if if, you, if this starts off as litigation and then a subsequent claim is made by either of the parties, the parties have the right to enforce the arbitration as to that particular claim. So that's specifically what we did in, in this particular case. So in theory, at least, the collection action would remain in state court as a state cause of action, although it would certainly be available uh, to the petitioner in this case to say, well, no, I'll, if you're going to arbitrate that portion of the case, then I'm content to arbitrate the rest of the case as well. So it, they, they could do it that way, or we could arbitrate Mr. the, the federal up, law. I'm sorry. Clear up one thing for me. Is it correct, as Justice Ginsburg suggested, that the counterclaim was purely defensive? Didn't it ask for additional relief? The counterclaim wasn't a class act? Oh, right. No, this, yeah, no, exactly. So it's not merely a, it was not right. really a defense to the, to the action, it's the, the state court action. Right. That's, that's what I meant to, I didn't mean to say you couldn't get affirmative relief on it. Counterclaim, of course you could, but this. But I couldn't. I couldn't chose, remove it. I chose think not. The, to, I think that was the point she was trying to make. Chose not to litigate the case. Chose to. Well, I'm being sued, so I'm going to bring up this claim. It wasn't as an original matter. Right. I, I understand that, Justice Ginsburg. But the, the the point I'm trying to make here is that the language of Section 4 just talks about the subject matter of the, of the controversy between the parties. It doesn't specifically talk about an existing lawsuit. And, frankly, it doesn't envision the and existence of a specific the, lawsuit. The controversy between the parties is the credit card company says, customer, you're in default $10,000. And the customer said, if that's so — then I have certain offsets because they charge me too much interest. Oh, and then how do you? How do you? It's all part of the same controversy, isn't right. it? No. Well, I mean, you could you can certainly view it as part of the same controversy. But the but the bottom line is the question is: Would a federal court have jurisdiction over the dispute that arises under federal law between? The petitioner and the respondents, and well, the, the answer is clearly is, yes. What is the dispute? You say the dispute is not defined by what what has been brought in a complaint. Well, it's um, defined by our complaint it, in section well, but, four. But, but you, from your argument, I would gather that a court would be able to imagine a counterclaim 
once it finds out, you know, what, what, what the, the principal complaint is about, the court could imagine that there would be a counterclaim for interest or for something else. Well, I'm not sure. It's very strange to decide federal jurisdiction on the basis of, uh, of imagined, imagined complaints. Well, I, th- I mean, the problem with that, just, I mean, the, the difficulty arises, Justice Scalia, because the language of the statute does say that the court has to determine whether it would have jurisdiction over the subject matter of the controversy. Well, but and that's so not that, a problem with his. I mean, with his interpretation, you don't have to imagine anything. Well, with his interpretation, you, you have to imagine everything. In point of fact, you have to imagine that this had something to do with ouster when it doesn't use the word ouster. Well, it has to do with equity and law when it uses equity and law in other contexts. You don't have to imagine complaints. You, you, you don't have to invent litigation. Oh no, that's true. But what it, but the, but the flip side of that is that this is a this is a section, a fundamental provision of the Federal Arbitration Act that that apparently was designed to provide a, a basis of federal jurisdiction for the Gila Indian tribe claims. And it seems inconceivable to me that Congress had that narrow an interpretation of Section Four in mind when it passed but this particular I think it, law. It's close to inconceivable to me that Congress wanted wanted us to to uh, construct litigation that is not yet in existence. But I think all of this really is talking, I mean, this is not significantly different. The answer that the litigation does exist. No, no, but your position is it doesn't have to exist. Had had that litigation not been brought, had the motion to arbitrate been brought before a lawsuit was filed, the, the court would still have to consider what is the dispute between the parties and what kind of complaints could that dispute and, have and generated? And it may well be, Justice Scalia, that in that context, the answer is that the court will say that the claim is, is unripe, that we don't know for sure whether or not this is going to congeal into a real dispute between the parties. And if that's ca- the case, obviously, then the court doesn't have to go forward. But you don't have to worry about that in the context of this particular litigation, because that dispute has congealed. The parties are at, at loggerheads over the particular issue in this case. Well, what uh, if, if I, that, I, I'm, if, I'm sorry. There would be nothing inappropriate about a state court entertaining that excessive interest claim, but applying federal law to it. I mean, the, the 1831D says that federal law governs the right. interest, not state use law. So you could have this case going on in state court, and right. the state court would be perfectly competent to apply the federal law. Right. Although, you know, that's to the obvious, obviously that sets aside the arbitration agreement completely. Well, why does it set aside? This is the thing I guess I don't understand about the case, and that is what is really driving your side, uh, given the difficulties that I, I share with, with the, with the justices on my right and left here. And the, the, uh, the tacit assumption seems to be, uh, that you, in fact, are, are going to get shortchanged on your arbitration right if you have to bring your arbitration claim in a state court. And I don't see that. Well, first of all, Section 4 doesn't apply in Maryland. I know Section 4 doesn't, but Section 2 does. To be sure, Section 2 does. But whether you or can, not — You can, based on the Federal Act, you can, in a state court, claim your right to enforce the arbitration agreement. Right. But the but the, Then the why don't side you do it in the state court instead of going through these gymnastics? Because we have serious doubts as to whether or not, in fact, we will have our Federal rights protected as zealously as we would in a Federal court. Well, what reason gymnastics, you, can I ask you uh, — if you had foreseen this problem, could you have brought a declaratory judgment action uh, to uh, establish uh, that your federal claim yes. uh, controls this is dispute? And could you have then said that you wanted this arbitrated? Yes, Justice Kennedy. Well, then I believe why we could we, have done both why didn't of those. you do that? Why are we here? Well, because we brought the action under Section 4, which I think the I mean, could you still said, do that after this I, case? You know, assuming there's no statute of limitations issue, and I don't know that there would be, but that would be available. But it still seems to me that the bottom line question is, are you entitled to bring an action under Section 4? So, so your theory, I mean, basically, I think you can see that the other side has a point in sometimes it'll be difficult to say what the dispute is precisely and therefore difficult to know if precisely this dispute does or does not, one that you could get into federal court on. For example, it hasn't even arisen. You know, there is no lawsuit. And I guess what would happen, what the judge should say, is they should say to you, you'd like to have this in federal court, wouldn't you, this dispute? What's it about? Right. And once he says, what's it about, both sides will say, well, basically, start it off, it's just about collecting some money from in-state parties. Eh, eh, so that's not federal. 
Right. So, you know, something could happen here. It could happen that they could decide they want to sue in a big class action and get huge amounts of money under usury laws of the state, which don't exist, so they have to proceed under an FDIC reg, and then it would be federal. And the judge might say to you, what? You're just imagining. Right. And, 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 and that would be up to the judge. Right. And the judge and so would have imagine. discretion That's to decide. That's a kind of a defense. But you say right. then there might be the case it wouldn't be so hard to decide. Right. There could be a letter that says, look, you know, what you're doing here violates federal law, and mm-hmm. if you don't stop it, we're going to take action against you. And the or or there could be, I suppose, a real suit. And in As the there real is suit, there is a class action brought not just on behalf of the one you're trying to sue, but on behalf of everybody, where they have to proceed under a federal reg and they're going to get a huge amount of money, and you say, that's what we want arbitrated. And that's precisely that, what we've asked uh, for here, Justice So Breyer. you say, this one is not so hard to figure out. Right. There might be some that are. Right. No, and there's no, no question here's about one that. That's, okay. here's and one the, that's hard to figure out. You have, a, say, a franchisee, uh, you have a dispute with the franchisor, and the franchisee says it's an antitrust violation, and I'm going to sue you under the California antitrust law. And he does. And the, the federal court says we look through and say, well, you could have sued under the federal antitrust law. And the fellow says, yeah, I could have. I deliberately didn't. And they say, well, you, this is something that could have been brought in federal court. I mean, that really deprives a plaintiff of his right to frame his complaint as he sees fit. No, I, I, and I understand that, Mr. Chief Justice. And, and in the right case, you know, I'm not sure how I would come out in that well, in particular. his case, in the Chief Justice's case, wouldn't you say they don't get into court? Probably don't. Because they're bringing this under right. state law. But see, I get to no, file no, the no, original no, complaint. No, but, but you just say, is the dispute one that could have been brought in federal court? Right. Well, that's and exactly what the 11th dispute, Circuit it's, it's a violation of the Sherman Act. Of course right. it could be brought in federal court. Well, and, and, and in the right case, if that were the, you know, if I had to go that far, I might well make that argument, Mr. Chief Justice. But in this case, I don't have to go that far. But I mean, I think all the court needs to resolve is in a situation where the parties have a very concrete dispute between them, one that arises is exclusively under federal law, and, and a party seeks to have that claim arbitrated under Section 4 pursuant to its Can I ask a factual question? Is the state, is the state, let me just get one fact. Is the state court suit still pending? Yes, the state court suit is still So there are two separate uh, right. underlying controversies. The, the state court has stayed its hand pending the outcome of the federal litigation, so we'll see what happens. But uh, obviously, as I say — There'd there'd be nothing left for the state court to do after you have the arbitration. I mean, you're not going to arbitrate about interest due on a non-existent debt. I mean, you have to have the two things together. Well, I mean, in some ways, as I say, that, it seems to me that's petitioner's right, or, or potentially, or ours. I suppose either side could ask to have that arbitrated. But the truth is, if you took — I just can't envision a case where what you haven't affected is taking a case, a debt, simple debt, no diversity, state court case. Right. And you've removed the state court from the picture and gotten it over into federal court to order the arbitration and any follow-up to the arbitration. It just seems to me you have affected, accomplished what you could not have accomplished by by removal, because you admit that you can't remove on the basis of a counterclaim. But see, Justice Ginsburg, I think that's that's not right. I think actually what happens is you you eliminate what I perceive to be the federal question in this through the arbitral process. You still have the underlying collection action. If the court says, no, there's no violation of the usury laws, you've not overcharged, you've not made any mistake, the question we still have is is a claim on the debt and her obligation to pay it. Now, whether she wants to adjudicate that in state court or, or resolve it as part of the arbitral process, that's really up to her as far as how that goes. But the arbitration agreement could not be plainer in saying that you can divide up the claims for purposes of seeking arbitration, and that seems to fit perfectly well with an effort to say that there's a specific claim here that arises exclusively under federal law and that, therefore, we can enforce our arbitration rights pursuant to that Section 4 right. Uh, and that's, frankly, all we're trying to accomplish here, Justice Ginsburg. The, the second part of the, of the statute, which is the, you know, the, the one that's obviously created the greatest amount of, of controversy here, is, you know, would have jurisdiction over the subject matter. Again, it seems to me that, that this is the easiest case the Court's going to face in this area, because there's one where there's no question. That's what worries me. That's what worries me. If we, if we accept your theory, this is the easiest case. 
Uh, what about the hard cases that are further down the line? Well, I think what's going to happen, I, I candidly don't think they're going to come up that much, in, in part because these issues have been around a long time. You know, it's not like there have been dozens of these kinds of issues arising over time. I don't think it's likely to be that big a problem. But, the, but the, again, it seems to me the district courts have the authority to resolve this, because if they don't believe that there really is a federal claim that, that — that would justify exercise of Section 4. They can say that. If they do, then they'll, then they'll send it. I mean, look, the other thing about this, you know, the other side makes a big fuss about federalism, but we're not asking to take the issues away from the federal court, from the state courts to the federal courts. What we're asking for is what everybody has agreed to here, which is to have these disputes resolved by arbitration. Yeah, but you could have asked for that in the state court as well, and it there's no question about that, Justice Ginsburg. The problem is, is that there is some lack of confidence in the state courts that we will get the same treatment under Section 4 that we would get in federal court. And, and you know, Congress bring, created didn't, that right. And bring that up here on appeal from the, from the state court. Well, I wish it were that easy to get this court to grant review of everything that I bring up here in the first place, but you don't have any problem. <laughs> and Mr. Phillips, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Mr. Phillips is not really a case of getting confidence in the federal judge. It's the arbitrator is going to decide this question. The arbitrator right. might decide there's no preemption. Right, but the and that's fine, and, and we have to live with that. And obviously, since we can't change the standards of review on the back end under sections nine, ten, and eleven, we're, we're going to be pretty much stuck with that with that determination. But the truth is, the, the bigger risk is that the trial judge, the state court, will not send it to arbitration. And may I ask this? I haven't reread the Moses Cohen case, but is your adversary correct in saying that there would have been no jurisdiction in that case if we followed your view? No. Because the arbitrator was not of diverse citizenship from the other party. I mean, it, it wasn't litigated. It's not clear on the face of the opinion. So, I mean, if, if there's something he knows that I don't know, maybe. But I, I certainly nothing in there that reflects that that view of the world. And under view, if, in fact, there were a non-diverse party in the Moses Cohen here, there should have been no jurisdiction. Well, it, it, you know, the, the non-diverse party issue, it depends on, on how you read Section 4. You know, Section 4 talks about the parties. And the parties there, I don't think, means parties to the underlying controversy. I think their parties refer specifically to the dispute in front of the court. So I don't think the pass-through problem for 1332 applies in that particular context for complete diversity. I don't think Congress envisioned you would look beyond the immediate dispute under Section 4 to see whether there are additional parties, except to the extent, obviously, that you would have necessary and indispensable party litigation that might bring them in. I think the, the assumption is you take the complaint as it's written, and then you look to see whether or not there's a mountain controversy. For that, you have to go beyond, because the dispute with respect to arbitration is not going to get you anywhere near that number, and you have to look beyond for federal questions to see whether or not there's a federal issue there. That needs is this to be right? I, I'm asking, it may sound favorable to you, but then I'll get a good response in the rebuttal. The, the, uh, so if I'm you read it the other way, <laughs> you read it the other way, the way the petitioners want to read it, then is this so or not? So let's, that, that, that then you'd look to see if there is federal jurisdiction of the arbitration agreement. Is that right? Under their interpretation. Under their interpretation. Yes. So right. what you could have is you could have Two parties sign an arbitration agreement that lasts for a year that governs all disputes between them, and one is from Vermont, the other from California. Right. So there is jurisdiction. And all the disputes happen to involve just pure matters of, of, that never could come into federal court. I mean, there are such matters you can sure. argue about. Right. But nonetheless, we'd have a federal court issuing this injunction under their theory. Right. You know, assuming the amount of Assuming they're right. Well, assuming well, the amount of controversy is, is uh, I mean, you could have an amount. Well, it, well, with it the arbitration the agreement, oh, I see it. it. The arbitration agreement has to meet the amount in controversy. Right. It has to have an independent basis. All right. So then you'd, you'd probably no arbitration agreement in itself meets the amount. Well, that's exactly our point. That's so, why you have to look through. So if you didn't look through, then this would apply to nothing. Pretty much that's our view of the case, yes. If the arbitration I'm sure, I was I'm sure my opponent if, will if say the something arbitration different arbitration agreement has to is that if they're talking about the arbitration agreement, then you could have really important federal questions in the substantive issue yes. that couldn't come in because the arbitration agreement doesn't. Or you could have state questions that would suddenly come in because the arbitration agreement does. The arbitration, but now you're saying, well, that second case is never going to arise. Probably not. Probably not, because well, no arbitration yeah. agreement has the, so then it becomes a nullity, this statute. Right. Except to overcome the ouster. Okay, we got your side of it. 
<laughs> well, it, it, it makes a nullity of it, uh, except that it gets into the federal court the decision on the arbitration agreement, which was the object of this stuff. Whatever, whatever the underlying claim is, whether it's a federal claim or not, as I understood the purpose of the Arbitration Act, it was to make sure that, that arbitration was, uh, was honored, not just in federal cases, but in state cases as well. And it's entirely uh, compatible with that that sometimes a federal court will will direct arbitration in a, in a case that involves an underlying controversy that's, that's purely uh, non-federal. Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, if, you know, in a situation, it, it depends on how you interpret it. If you interpret it the way the petitioner does in saying that you can't have any look-through. Now, he, he, he softens that and says, well, you know, you can have look-through for diversity. But if you accept the idea that, that Section 4 only makes you look at the dispute at the arbitration level, then the, the reality is you're going to have no cases that are going to be covered because you're never going to satisfy the amount in controversy. And, and then the issue is why do you get to look through for diversity purposes and never get to look through for federal question purposes? And it, and it seems to me the much easier way to reconcile the language of the statute is to say, of course you look through to see, particularly if you have an unquestioned federal question dispute that's being litigated between the parties. We know that. There's not an issue before us. In fact, he's conceded as much even here in court today. And so it seems to me that's the solution to this case. Now, admittedly, there will be other cases where you may have ripeness questions, and there may be other cases where the parties will have to fight at at the federal district court level as to precisely what's at issue and what the plaintiff really means to be fighting over. And it may be in some instances you won't get an order that, that directs arbitration. Why but that's not this case. to look to see the party who wants arbitration has a dispute. The dispute is we are owed money by the debtor. Why shouldn't the court say, well, we'll see what your case is about. If your case would qualify for federal jurisdiction, fine. But we're not going to look to see what the defendant's case is or might be. We'll just look at your case, and that's how we'll define controversy. Well, there, there are two problems with that. First of all, the statute talks about the subject matter of the controversy. It doesn't talk about the specific controversy. And second of all, the statute clearly envisions that there are going to be situations where there is no complaint, there is no underlying state court cause of action. And it still envisions in that situation that a district court is going to have to determine whether or not it would have jurisdiction. But then you'll have not only a hypothetical claim because nothing has been brought but a hypothetical answer by way of counterclaim to that claim. Right, but it seems to me that's precisely what the language would have jurisdiction over the subject matter of the controversy asks this Court to make a determination. So you come into the Court and say, there's no suit going on anywhere, but if we were to bring this suit in State Court, the defendant could have brought this Federal counterclaim. That's a lot of hypothesis. But it seems to me, Justice Ginsburg, the better way to think about this is what if we were getting letters from the petitioner saying, you are engaged in usurious conduct, you are outrageous, you've got to stop what you're doing, we're going to, we're going to bring a class action against you, you better change your behavior tomorrow, and they don't sue us, and they don't sue us, and they don't sue us. And then the question is, are we entitled to go to court to get that resolved, and are we entitled to have the resolution of that issue? as a matter of arbitration. Mr. Phillips, it seems to me your better hypothetical is what if there had been no original collection action, but they had brought such an action. Right. Well, that's, class that's actually, uh, you're right. That's, that's the case you're really that's, saying. That's you're saying that's case. like this case. That is this case. And Justice Ginsburg suggests it's not because there happens to arise out of a different, quite different dispute. Right. But I, I thought your question absolutely nailed it because you said, would this have, you know, if you brought that suit, could you and would you? And the answer is yes, you could. And therefore, you know, as, as a, without any question that it's a federal I understand your opponent. They would agree there was no jurisdiction even in that, even in that case. Right. That's, yeah. I think there's no doubt that that's their position. What do you do with, their, with the assertion that Sections 9 through 11 are not in sync with your view because they would not give you — you could go in and to compel arbitration, but once the arbitration was award, award was made, you would not have access to the federal court 
to enforce the award. Yeah, well, I mean, the interesting thing about 9, 10, and 11 is, if anything, the language is broader than, than our language. If, if we didn't have the save for and would have jurisdiction under, this would clearly be an action that arises under federal law. Because the question, you know, Section 4 says, have you been aggrieved? Do you have a right of action? And do you have a remedy for that action? I mean, without this rigmarole that we've been talking about this whole time, we, we would have, we would easily have a 1331 action. So if anything, you would argue that 9, 10, and 11 arise under federal law regardless. Now, if you don't want to go that far, then it seems to me you'd just say you'd read Sections 9, 10, and 11 in pari materia with the limitation in Section 4, and you wouldn't read it any broader than that. But there's so, no basis for taking the, the unlimited languages in 9, 10, and 11 and somehow distorting that to more narrowly limit the rights that we have under Section 4. The petitioner so I, says that you never clearly identify the particular federal question on which the jurisdiction rests in this case. What can you clarify that? Yeah, this case arises under Section 4 through the Section 27. Section 4 creates the federal Yes, it does create it. it because Section 4, without the would-have jurisdiction language, clearly would be arising under jurisdiction, in my judgment. And the only thing — then, but then it places a, an additional requirement on you. You, don't, you can't just use the, the contract to get you into federal court. You have to then look to see whether you would have had an underlying cause of action or an underlying federal claim or whether there would have been diversity jurisdiction on the underlying claim. Why, why can't you have a sort of modified look-through, like a modified limited hangout or whatever it was? Uh, that is to say, you can look through for the purpose of determining whether the arbitration agreement raises a federal question. But that doesn't mean you have to look through to determine whether the uh, underlying controversy raises a federal question. Because I, th- I, think the lang- I think the reference in the statute to controversy clearly envisions the underlying dispute between the parties, because it's not just the arbitration agreement, and it's not even just the controversy. It's the subject matter of the controversy. And if you you compare that to Section 2, and it's clear that what Congress has in mind there is the underlying dispute between the parties. Is the petitioner's — I didn't get a chance to ask the petitioner. Is the petitioner's argument for um, a limited look-through compromised in any way by the beneficial bank case, which allows removal if there's a federal defense? Well, I, I mean, I think I don't know if it's compromised by it. I think it, it, the beneficial case makes it absolutely clear that we have here a, a federal claim, and therefore, That's, of course, in the context of a defense as opposed to a counterclaim. Right, but but again, I don't think I don't think Section Four is is asking the courts to to make that that determination. I think what Section Four is asking the court to look at is the subject matter of the controversy. And is it, is it clear under the circumstances that there is, in fact, a federal claim underlying it? And here, there's no question on that. I ask you to affirm. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. Uh, Mr. Ortiz, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, just a few quick points. Uh, I think this Court should be exactly clear how much federal question jurisdiction the look-through theory would create. So long as a federal issue can be imagined anywhere uh, in the lawsuit, there would be federal question jurisdiction under this theory. And this is almost, by definition, going to be the case in any dispute concerning credit card debt, either because of the theory of complete preemption uh, from the FDIA or because of the theory used in the strong case before the Eleventh Circuit that RICO's prohibition on the collection of unlawful debt. What, what about a federal defense? That's not really quite true, because here there is a definition of the federal claim in your counterclaim. I'm sorry, Your Honor? There is a definition of the controversy in your counterclaim and in their response. No, no, there, in general, if you accepted their theory, yeah. Your Honor, as long as there is an issue that could be spun as a federal issue, which there will always be in a credit card debt collection case in just in most states, uh, that on a look-through theory. You're suggesting that every credit card uh, uh, debtor would have a class action? Uh, Your Honor, every — it does not have to be a class action to establish what well, would that, serve — that's your view of it. But, I mean, believe me, I think I can keep that problem under control. That was your original point. I see the point. It's going to spread too far. You'd have to have some rules of cabinet. Assume I've got that under control. Maybe I don't. This is a case of, well, his brother was worse. 
What do you want to say about the criticisms of the horrible things that happen if we adopt your position? Well, Your Honor, uh, Respondent argues that this is an easy case, or at least over time the courts will decide these things to make the jurisdictional inquiry, inquiries clear. Uh, petitioners not believe that that is true. For example, here, the real party and interest dispute consume much of the court's time. The lower courts have gone both ways on this issue. It's incredibly fact-dependent. There is no easy uh, answer for it. Also, Your Honor, uh, petitioner does not believe that the Declaratory Judgment Act would have been appropriate in this case. Declaratory judgments are discretionary. And in the context of where you have a pending state court lawsuit, Petitioner believes that a federal district court uh, would be very cautious before uh, permitting one. Also, Your Honor, if in the context of declaratory uh, judgment action, presumably the district court would have to take the state court admissions into account. And in particular here, it was admitted that the account was with Discover Financial Services, not with the bank. Um, also, Your Honors, uh, this respondents try to portray Petitioner's position is siphoning off all federal question jurisdiction. That is not true. Under petitioner's view, a lot of federal question jurisdiction, some would remain. It would just be that the arbitration agreement itself would have to sound in federal law. ERISA arbitration agreements would still be covered. Some labor agreements would still be covered. There would be. Sorry, what do you mean would still be covered? Uh, would still be covered under uh, petitioner's theory of what Section 4 means. So, for example, uh, Chief, uh, Mr. Chief. Would, Justice, would still be. Uh, in federal court. It'll still be in federal court. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.